0: Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made to that end. I speak to authors of all sorts of backgrounds and uh, genres and styles, and I sometimes look at readers' first and listeners' first pages and sometimes... I just talked to you today. I'm talking to the author, Mike Shell, who is a fantasy author. He's also an indie author. He also writes some um, or has written uh, work for uh, role-playing games, so kind of materials for people who are playing uh, tabletop role-playing games. I view, I'm playing some of his adventures at the moment. Uh, he's also, which sort of isn't, Maybe, I mean, it kind of goes into some of the stuff we talk about on the show, right? For those of you who've been listening for a while, right? He also happens to be, uh, you know, professionally, he's trained as uh, as a uh, therapist doing stuff with anxiety and panic as a, you know, his, his background's in psychology and we actually get onto anxiety at the end of our chat because if you listen to the show a lot you know i have anxiety and so i talk about my mental health a little bit on the show but also because hands up amongst you if you um those of you who never experienced anxiety around writing or your work right i see no hands going up i mean i suppose obviously you'd be worried about me if i did but there's a poorly delivered rhetorical point but my point is I think most writers unless (laughs) they're very unusual experience a certain amount of anxiety around the creative act now they may we may avoid it in different ways so and stop ourselves from even experiencing it or acknowledging it but it's there so we kind of cap off our interview our chat with a little bit on that and his experience, and also because I'm writing a book about anxiety at the moment, I, I really wanted to ask him about that. And it turns out, as you'd expect, he's got some. I just just hang around for the end end of the interview because when we get to that bit, it's um, you know, it's quite something. He's got quite some uh, professional wisdom, but also we you know we talk about his own journey to starting to write his own novels and 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 some of the ways in which you know, he had to get past his own inner critic to start doing that. We talk a little bit about writing, I guess, interactive stories. You know, we've had different uh, authors on the show before who don't necessarily just write fiction. Uh, we had Grant Howitt a while back talking about writing for role-playing games, like his game Spire. Um, so, I this isn't just an episode for you if you write, if you want to write. Uh, interactive fiction or adventures for role-playing. I I imagine there's only a small proportion of my audience who would even consider such things. But as I said before, I think cross-training is so important and there's so many considerations that come into play when you think about how can I write, essentially, a story with no protagonist? That's what materials are for something like Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder or any of these different games, Call of Cthulhu. It's like, I'm going to write a world that you could have an adventure in, but there's no characters because the players come along and they invent those characters themselves. There's, you know, there's might be a villain, there might be some antagonists, there might be some bit part characters, some what we call NPCs, non-player characters, uh, along the way that they encounter. You know, there might be a victim, there might be various persecutors, there might be Uh, there, you know, there might be a mentor figure that I've written, but the main characters have to be able to slot into this story. Now, when you start thinking what makes a good environment for them to exist in, what makes a good story world, I think the questions you start asking yourself and the results you come up with are really interesting and uh, suggestive in the non-erotic sense, and I just think it's an angle that a lot of writers don't really come at their work from and I think it can apply to literary fiction right what kind of environment is like and world and milieu if you want to get showy offy about it um, is an interesting one for the story you know what you know from like literary fiction for example this concept of the set piece you know what kind of what? what's some cool places for my characters to go or for my character to be experiencing whatever um fancy aporia or whatever we'd be doing literary fiction you know what what are some interesting worlds that they could be moving through i think that's a consideration whether you're writing romance if you're writing a romance novel right what's a cool place for that to be happening you can you can look at that exactly the same way as you would writing an adventure and go well how can i create and those of you who write you know uh romance well I'm, I'm probably telling you stuff you already know but you can kind of go how can i put a situation where the characters can't wander off too far well i might put them on a cruise together i might trap them in a lift together you know you want to find some ways in which they're maybe people who wouldn't normally be coming together uh, for now i i kind of put in a situation where they have to uh encounter each other these things go through, you can work in a kind of piece of crime fiction. How can I set up a world with compelling hooks that then when I plunk my protagonist into it, they will be, you know, they can't really, really can't avoid wanting to follow them. They're not what we call railroaded. They don't have to. They've got choice. They've got agency, but they're going to not be able to resist finding out more about this. They're going to be motivated. Well, those are things that Just by thinking about how one might write an adventure, you can then apply to your fiction in any genre. And so that's why I think this is really a really useful discussion whether you want to write adventures or not. I just think cross training is so so is a force multiplier for your craft. And and then we talk about talk a bit about like self publishing and the indie scene and what he's learned from that. And we also just talk about some of his influences as well. It's a really, really nice choice, uh, chat. I was really looking forward to talking to Mike. Uh, it took us a little while to to work out because of the time differences uh, and because he's a person <laughs> with stuff to do. But um, I'm really, really glad. And, I mean, this is irrelevant to the fact that I think, you know, you should go and check out his books, like The Aching God is the first in the series. You can go and... Download a sample of that and get reading. uh I, It's relevant to that. I think those they're, they're like cool adventures, and you'll find them really interesting. And I've been reading his stuff and just en- enjoying diving into a kind of rich adventure. And I'm playing through a couple of his adventures at the moment with the two uh groups that I uh dungeon master for, and I'm like in the middle of his his world at the moment, so. I should say, if you're planning to play either of the adventures we talk about um, and you're planning to be a player, probably don't listen to our discussion about that because it contains spoilers. Also, if you're planning to read my book, The Honours, and you're not more than halfway through yet, there is kind of like a major spoiler in our conversation as well. Just FYI, you might want to hurry up and uh, read that. Um, Link's in the show notes if you'd like to have a... uh, have a peep at it but like the final thing I want to say before I hand you over to Mike and you can hear us talking is that and I'm sure he won't mind my saying this but after we finish the conversation as happens sort of most interviews there's sort of a period where we the mic's off and we're we're just chatting right after we've finished recording and uh, you know sometimes stuff comes up in that and whatever but it's just like a lovely chance to just have a conversation Well, like as soon as we stop recording um Mike made a point of immediately recommending to me and giving shout outs to i'd say like a dozen different writers in the sort of indie community who he really likes whose work he wanted to signal boost who he was saying you should speak to these people i think they'd be great for your show i think you'd really love their work and he just like made a point of lifting up the people around him and just and and it just i think came out of a genuine enthusiasm for his peers work we talk a little bit about community in this episode and I think there's some great lessons to learn from that but just you know that's the kind of guy he is is um his priority was uh lifting up and supporting and boosting his peers and his fellow writers and I think that's really cool so you know i would consider it a personal favor Uh, not that it's something that that i think needs mediating through the sort of like being a personal favor i think you'll get a lot out of it as well but i would consider it a personal favor and would be really really super glad if you went and clicked one of the links in the show notes to mark to to mike's work to the aching guard click a link you know download a sample have a read of it support his work because um he's a great guy with a just a real um real instinct for adventure and interesting worlds and just like an enthusiasm for the world of storytelling that shines through um i'd love it if you um were able to check out his work and if you enjoy the uh if you enjoy this episode you can follow him on twitter i'll put a link in the show notes as well and you can let him know what you thought of uh today's episode because I'm sure that kind of like feedback is always um, lovely for writers to hear anyway I'm not gonna I've listened back to a few episodes re- recently and realized how long I go sometimes with my intros it's just because I like talking to you that's all it is um so without further ado here's my chat with the author Mike Shell. I do hope you enjoy it
1: I have to tell you that uh you know ever since you contacted me i've been i've been listening uh to the podcast and I, I really think it's brilliant tim i i i love what you do i think it's incredibly interesting i love your honesty and and the insight that you uh, that you share with others i just i it's it's a wonderful wonderful podcast so i'm i'm thrilled to be on
0: oh it's i'm well anyway i' we'll sort of i'll try and sort of distribute this um sort of mutual regard throughout the interview rather than front loading it too heavily not that it's not sincere but um and this and actually i'm really excited because this chat that we're about to have i get to ask you about as you'll know a series of areas that are i think of interest to so many listeners but also are like my personal so my personal favorite areas to chat about which are mm-hmm. sort of broadly speaking making stories and with a particular sort of accent on on fantasy um like role-playing an adventure i think which i've had some rpg designers like grant howard on the show who like made um Mm -hmm. who, who did honey heist and things like that uh and then also shading into a little bit maybe talking a bit later about uh anxiety as well and like how that is inflected both through as the you know how the author feels it but also how that comes into characters as well because I mean I talked a little bit um I've talked a bit about representation of like mental health and things like that in stories before um and it would just it I'm sure we'll get to talk about that because that's something that you've you've done and so i think that'd be really nice to chat about that as well if that's okay sure oh absolutely but what i'd like to start with um and i guess this is sort of my classic kind of opener but i think it's such a fun way of sort of diving into things which is what's the first story you can remember telling Uh, Ah, you know I can think of the
1: first time I, I tried to, to write and it was probably later than, than a lot of writers would, would, would tell you. I was probably around 13 or 14 and I decided I was going to, uh, to write a novel um, and uh, it ended up being this kind of horribly derivative uh, uh, take on, on Logan's run. Um, wow what which,
0: a choice awesome yeah
1: it was uh uh i, I remember as a, as a kid with the uh the the previews being shown on television and of course it was an r-rated film there was no way i was going to be able to go see that as a, as a young kid uh and being fascinated by it and and ended up reading the uh, novelization of it and so it was kind of this uh uh uh, it actually had some hunger game vibes to it too for people who but, haven't uh, i seen, think i managed to get
0: for people who haven't seen logan's run could you give them a little brief pracy of what it's about uh,
1: it's it's uh, it's this a, a 70s uh, conceptualization of the future uh, in which these people are living in uh, beautiful young people living in a domed city uh, and the the deal is that you you get to live this this uh, life of of uh, pleasure, uh, until you turn 30, at which point, uh, you, uh, you, you go to, uh, carousel where you try to renew. And the, the trick is of course, no one renews. And, uh, it's, this is just their population control. And, uh, Logan is, uh, uh, a sandman who is responsible for tracking down people who try to get out uh, to try to run from, uh, from carousel, uh, uh, because they don't want to die. Um, and, uh, he ends up getting drawn into all sorts of intrigue and, and we get to see the truth of what's happened to the world. And, um, you're just not, not, there wasn't a lot of that, uh, in the seventies coming out. I mean, obviously star Wars in 77. Um, but most of the science fiction, you know, it was few, there are few and far between and, uh, uh i had never seen anything like it and it just really captured my imagination
0: it's i mean i now i'm just in a kind of reverie talking uh thinking about it and you know bits of the film have dated but the feel oh, yeah. of it right like the vibe and the kind of tone of the movie is like it's got that weird combination of science fiction but with like I don't know how to explain it, but kind of like a mythic feel behind it. Yes. Yes. Can you, and, Absolutely. and, and, and that, and the story that you, that you wrote, do you remember sort of what it was, a what it was about, how it kind of like, how it embodied some of those things? Oh, it
1: was a post-apocalyptic world where, you know, people got selected for this game. It sounds so much like the hunger games now. And of course this is 1970. So I'm, I'm wanting royalties. <laughs> um, I can't tell you how many times that kind of thing has happened, where I've had this idea and then down the road, you know. <laughs> but at any rate, um, uh, I, I I I recall it being this this post apocalyptic world where where these kids are getting selected to do this this uh, combat game, and uh, they try to escape and they end up going out into this blasted landscape with giant spiders and roanoke virginia for some reason and uh, it's one thing that sticks out in my mind but i think i probably got about uh 60 to 90 pages handwritten pages into it before i kind of uh uh sputtered but out that's a lot um, that's
0: i mean well yeah. done that's awesome because you're like you're like 13 14 no one's watching you no one's making you do it so you're doing this in right. your free time and you would i think that's sort of i think like we can be sort of really you know not defensive but we can be really kind of like apologetic about what we tried to do as teenagers but i often like look back at what people have done when they were quite young and the effort they put into and i kind of think that's i think that's fantastic mike like that you did so much just because and you know i I, because i get so many emails from adults going oh i'm really struggling to write and yet you sat down you went i'm gonna just have a go at this that's cool
1: well, the truth is that's the most that I wrote until I actually wrote my novel because I, you know, I made many attempts over the years to write, and uh, other than academic writing, which is you know uh, hideously tedious in so many ways, um, I, I really had got I got paralyzed because what would happen is I would write a little bit and then obsessively edit and re-edit and re-re-edit until i had squeezed every ounce of joy and inspiration out of whatever it was i was i was trying to create and uh, that just really paralyzed me for years what
0: do you think happened between you writing this first sort of expansive attempt where you were just following the characters and discovering this kind of world opening out around them out with them uh what do you think happened between then and this point where you uh, were becoming, you, you, you found yourself kind of unable to do anything without kind of going back and kind of crushing it? Self-consciousness, uh, starting to worry about.
1: What other people would think, knowing that I wasn't right, I wasn't writing for myself. I wanted other people to read it and love it and think it was wonderful and thereby think I was wonderful. Um, I really think that's that's a big part of what it was is just this idea of, okay, I'm now I'm writing for other people's consumption, and uh, uh, what if they don't like it? What if it isn't wonderful? Uh, what if they don't think it's wonderful um what if i embarrass myself so a lot of it was just tied into this sense of a kind of a performance anxiety i think um and just the self-criticism and and never being satisfied with with what i was producing
0: so like for a lot of people they they don't they sometimes they don't ever get beyond that point or they have like the vaguest intimation of that feeling and never even try and so one thing I want to ask before we kind of go on to talking about your work is around this time or around these years what are some of the stories that you read or the movies that you saw where you were like oh what, this is the juice the kind of things that despite all those feelings were getting you to like at least have a go the kind of books you read and went <gasps> Oh, this is it. This feeling, I don't quite know what it is, but this yeah. is it.
1: The book that made me a reader was Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. I had to, I can't remember if it was the sixth, or seventh grade that it was assigned. And I was, I was, I've generally been a terrible procrastinator my entire life. And I put off reading this until the last minute and finally sat down the weekend before we needed to start talking about in class and absolutely just devoured it. I couldn't, I was just absolutely absorbed, uh, by it. Um, i also, that soon after that started reading, uh, Kurt Vonnegut and just was really drawn into his work as well. I I really, I I really believe, yeah, I I grew up in a, uh, lower middle class, uh, uh, working well, you would think of as as uh, as working class uh, home in uh, the Midwest in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, and uh, uh, with parents who would later on turn out to be Reagan Democrats, um, and here I am, uh, you know, as uh, as an adult very, very, uh, much a, a leftist. And, uh, I really think it was because of the literature I read when I was a, a teenager. I think that, uh, that Vonnegut and, and writers like Harper Lee kind of formed my, my value system. Um, I guess I, you know, raised in the, in, uh, the church too. I took the social gospel seriously and, uh, I really think it was my reading that made that happen. That's
0: really interesting. What do you think is going on there that, um, where a book can, do you think like when books sort of, uh, resonate with somebody, do you think that they are actually, that they're just activating something that's always in there in terms of like teaching lessons or maybe shifting someone's ideological view or expanding something? Or, or do you think, because that's you know it seems on the face of it like quite an amazing thing that you can read a fictional stories and they can have sort of more of an impact on you than say the views of your parents and what they try and hand down to you or the people in your mm. immediate environment what do you think is going on there when a story sort of can stories teach us stuff or do they just or, 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 oh, do, they, I- or do we already think those things Absolutely,
1: I think that uh, that oftentimes uh, stories are, are camouflage for for ideas and ways for us to access empathy in uh, in ways perhaps that we don't necessarily do in our everyday lives. I mean, we certainly get introduced to people in fiction uh, who we wouldn't meet in our in our everyday lives. I mean, I, I grew up in. Uh, I mentioned Dearborn, Michigan, suburb of Detroit, um, which is probably one of the most balkanized uh, metropolitan areas in the United States where you have you know my my neighbor i'm my my a real last name is 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 Italian, uh, and so my neighbors were the Gallows and the Corpolongos and and the Mazzolas and you know just surrounded by by Italian American families. There's the Polish suburb, the Jewish suburb, uh, African American people generally concentrated into the Detroit area. Despite the fact that I grew up in the Detroit area, I was in the eleventh grade, which would have made me sixteen, seventeen before I met and spoke to a person who was african-american so uh you know i had already met uh that the the uh the people of african descent i had met to that date had all been in books and uh you know being able to see them as people just like me with the same sorts of 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 needs and and fears and 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 hopes uh you know, being able to build empathy uh, for the other. I mean, we're we're in a. I, I, I don't understand how I'm I'm getting here so soon. How was, I'm getting in this place talking about this so quickly. I, I think that we're in an era, uh, not just in the in the states, but but really in in, in the world where uh, there is this this movement of of ugliness uh where we are going to this this kind of uh, demonizing of the other we think by my god it's 2019 are we still playing these same sort of games with with ourselves why why haven't we come uh together as as a species and learned that we are dependent on one another we need one another and th- that's all we've got um and I think that I think that literature and and film and art in, in in many ways, it's it's one of its primary functions is to to help us celebrate beauty and to celebrate one another. and uh, it, it just I, I think there's so much that can be done with great uh, uh, great stories um, that it's hard to do uh, because the experience that you have with a book is so much more private and internal than say a film that you're sitting and watching with with a bunch of other people or uh you know it's a, it's a it's a much more solitary activity.
0: It's certainly an activity where you're having to play kind of like an active role like you're acting as the kind of ca- casting director for a lot of those characters yes, as you bring absolutely. them you're like you know however subconsciously you are you have to picture what they look like right and your experience of what they look yes. like will be different to other people and you may depending on how the book's written there may be some interpretive space that you slide into and you'll decide you're kind of making judgments on what their motivation is as well
1: yes yes absolutely
0: i, I want to come back to this because this is like um this is really important and i'd love to, uh, and i want to talk about it so i'm not i don't want you to think that i'm kind of like um, moving swiftly on or brushing it aside i just think it would possibly be, it'll be informed by some some of our discussion about your own work so i I wanted to sort of talk about um what then changes because you're talking about struggling with kind of procrastination and by implication perfectionism and yet here you are having written novels right so something somewhere shifts for you and I was wondering if you could talk about what shifts
1: Um, it's it's very well I guess twofold one uh, when I started writing RPG adventures for paizo publishing for the pathfinder role-playing game I was introduced to large writing projects Um, you know, something started off smaller, you know, a a 4,000 word, 3,000 word, uh, article, uh, building up all the way to a, you know, 42,000 word, uh, adventure path installment. Um, so i was introduced to working on this this larger scale under a deadline right because this wasn't just this wasn't for me this was for uh you know i was a freelancer i was supposed to be delivering a product and with that time pressure and the need to be to be organized and disciplined i think that helped. can i I ask
0: sort of what your role is in that situation like do they come to you and say we want an adventure about this, or are you given sort of like uh, a place and some parameters, and they're asking you to fill it in, or are you providing, I suppose, the flavor for something where the content already exists? What was your role in those situations?
1: uh Generally speaking, uh, you know, Paizo is is guiding. They they have a vision uh, for their for for Pathfinder and. Uh, for instance an adventure path is uh, is one of, is kind of their their uh, uh, their primary product with a flagship product um, and it's a series of adventures that take player characters from first level all the way up to 17 18 19 20th level and so there's a there is a story uh, that is told over six Uh, six chapters, and each of those chapters is written by a different freelancer, and so they have an overarching story they want to tell, uh, and they have a story within each one of the chapters they want to tell, and they give you an outline of, you know, we want want this to occur, we want that to occur, we might want this monster to be included, we want this kind of a character to be designed. So they're giving you uh, an outline, but really leaving you a great amount of leeway to to uh, fill in the in the gaps and make the story your own. Um, so uh, you know, if, if you, as I said, this is a flagship product for for Piso. So you don't start off writing adventure paths. They start use much smaller and. Uh, and and test you out making sure you can hit deadlines making sure that you uh can follow instructions and uh before you get there but uh, but they really do i i just found it to be uh really uh, a great way to get going because i had essentially uh, a ton of provocative writing uh prompts uh to get me me going and and uh, and use my creativity so uh yeah, that's that's more or less what the process. Yeah, like. it sounds.
0: It sounds like uh, I was surprised how much I enjoyed the first time I wrote the English script for a video game, and I remember. I remember. I was also sort of like did the was did was like consultant director when we recorded voices, and this was like I hadn't put a novel out or anything. I I, I, I basically blagged my way into the job, and it was. series of sort of silly flukes but um i remember i made the mistake of like apologizing to one of the voice actors and going oh you know i'm sorry this isn't exactly shakespeare and they were like looked at me and they were like i'm having loads of fun and then i was like oh oh yes so am i oh this is Mm -hmm. like and then i and i realized how much i enjoyed sort of someone else making a lot of the sort of those the blank page decisions and saying yes. we're writing this adventure in space and the baddies are like these genetically modified dinosaurs and in who pilot ships and um this is what the you're going for. And actually then I didn't have to worry about any of that. I could just worry about the dialogue. And I was like, I'm having a whale of a time here. And I suddenly realised yeah. it reminded me how much I can enjoy writing. Because the 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 pressure, like, and also it was sort of somebody else's story. And I was just getting to, a bit, I guess like role-playing itself, right? I was getting to improvise within their world, and it was great fun.
1: Right. Yes, yes, yes.
0: So, and then from that, you... And so you're saying that that then gave you the sort of confidence or just loosened something up enough that you were then able to move to your own fiction?
1: No, because this is the thing. My, my wife uh, had said many times... You know why? Are you, why are you telling stories in someone else's world? Why don't you? Why don't you write uh, a novel? And you know my response was, it's not that easy. <laughs> you know you, you don't understand. You know I've i you know doing my own. I've tried for years to do it. I mean, and literally you know decades of 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 trying and just being uh, you know, being foiled after ten to twenty pages of you know again obsessive uh, editing. And what really, what was the the, the the final ingredient that enabled me to do this was uh, I, I attended uh, Gen Con, I, I live in Indianapolis, Indiana now, and uh, Gen Con, the, the enormous gaming convention happens in my backyard every year. And uh, I had been attending, I started attending uh, when I uh, began writing for Paizo, and in I believe it was in 2016. I went to the writer symposium uh, that they have there, and uh, I can't remember the the panel. I can't remember who the, who the panelist was, but he was just sharing what his writing process was. And he said that every morning he sat down and took whatever he had written the day before, whatever you know, 1,500 to 3,000 words he had written the day before, and he did one quick editorial pass over that uh, over that chunk and then picked up the thread from there. And I sat down, I thought that, I wonder if that would work for me, Um, because I've got, I had a a novel in mind, and and we can talk about where that came from if you want to later, but uh, maybe that that will work for me. And over the course of the next 10 weeks, I managed to generate 132,000 word
0: first Sorry, wait, draft how, over how many weeks 10 what yes. oh ho- 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 uh i i you know i i'm look i know that you know this came uh, on the back of lots of effort and toil and struggle but i i feel i can hear the howls of jealousy <laughs> echoing <laughs> across the the planet of people here i mean no that's fantastic i am happy for you but that's incredible if, if makes, what a difference yeah. from, from oh, not yeah, being oh, able to do it at I, all to being just like okay bang here it is absolutely and, and it felt it almost felt as though
1: it was it was already preformed in my mind and was just i was just getting it out you know on uh, in this case yeah on the computer screen but uh if it makes you feel any better, the, the second book in the series uh, took me 10 months to generate a first draft. So, uh, you know, By my that, was, uh, Mike, that... that
0: is still really yeah. quick. So I would say like, even then that's fantastic and a really good working rate. And I don't think anyone would, 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 would ever um, uh, think that that was slack at all, but um, it, it gave me, but the, the first book gave me this, that the, the it was
1: real the second book in a lot of ways was a crisis of confidence and i I know that you know that sophomore slump that people talk about uh is a real thing um because my expectation was well i'm going to sit down and i'm going to write the the first draft
0: in in uh you know 10 i'll give myself yeah i've cracked i've cracked this now i'm a writer i've I've done a book book. so i'm a writer so writers can write without any problems or complications right yeah yeah no i know those fields yeah um uh, Yeah. So, sorry go on
1: yeah, Go yeah i'm i'm i have nothing of interest to say go Great. ahead <laughs>
0: um well you were just about to say so sort of the actual source of where this book came from i guess the seeds of it now we've kind of got that kind of craft process there was also but you had an uh, you had an idea um ready to go
1: right? yeah yeah actually uh two years before two chen cons before that i had made a pitch for a standalone adventure for Pathfinder, I mean, to uh, uh, Paizo's uh, creative director James Jacobs, and it was essentially the the dungeon crawl part of the novel and the uh, the history behind uh, what what led to it, and uh, uh, he passed on it. It's not not quite what we want i just thought this is a, this is a really i really just think this is an interesting idea the next year you know i harangued him again about you know let do this as a standalone and his response was you know this sounds like something that maybe you need to do on your own so i threw around the idea of uh of writing uh, a self-published module um you know it's a, they have uh uh, the open gaming license, and so you've got a lot of third-party publishers who are creating content. And I, I knocked it around for for nearly a year, and then I came upon uh, this this uh, writer symposium where I got this little bit of advice and thought, "I'm gonna I'm gonna try to write this as a novel," um, which involved then uh, taking this this idea for a module, and the, and the, the you know one of the ways that writing. RPG material differs from writing a novel. Is that when you write an RPG adventure, uh, you are not writing the protagonists. The protagonists are the players and their characters. And uh, and, and in a novel, obviously, you're responsible for all the characters, but especially so for for your protagonists. And uh, and so that was I had to essentially create this as a uh, pull it out of the world of Galarian, which is the campaign world that uh, Pathfinder that, that Paizo produces, uh, and create my own world with my own characters and 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 a protagonist that uh, that would be compelling enough to to take this kind of in in many ways a very tropey story and make it real. It's
0: such a it's such. Uh, sort of mind-boggling thing to try and explain to authors coming at it from the other direction who maybe fancy that they could write uh, an RPG adventure and you're like you've got to write a story with no protagonists or with putative there's got space for protagonists but you don't get to choose what they do you don't get to choose who they speak to They might try and negotiate with this character. They might just kill them. And in which case we need some other way to find out this information. They might make some very bad. In fact, they will make some very bad decisions. And and this world still needs to have options for them. How are you going to do that? So to do it the other way and to... um, It it, it also sounds very challenging, but also very exciting. Because I guess it's like you almost had to play your own adventure. Yeah, it, it, yeah,
1: exactly. And, and, and the thing is, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I've found that players recoil against is the idea of being railroaded into anything. They want to have it open-ended. They don't want to feel like they're following the, uh, the, all the breadcrumbs that you lo- you know, this linear path that you've created for them. Uh, they really resent that. Uh, so, uh, and you know, I'm I'm writing this RPG thing. Say, look, I'm I'm trying to tell a story here, guys. You need to, <laughs> you need, to, and and so you know, writing a novel for me was really liberating because then I could I could decide what everyone did, when they did it, how things turned out, and now I can tell a proper story, right? Um, yeah, writing RPG adventure it presents the uh, some special challenges. That for me probably was the biggest one was uh, making sure that I wasn't um, forcing players to do uh exactly what i wanted them to do
0: i I want to come back to this in in a bit because i actually think that in thinking about rpg sort of writing theory can really teach writers who maybe even have no uh, sort of idea about wanting to write an adventure but i think there's so much that cross-training can teach us about having characters with good motivations and having plots that don't feel like they're on rails to the reader. You know, so when a protagonist makes a decision, it does feel like they've chosen it, even if you, the author, this is what you wanted them to do. Of course it is. Um, The the readers feel like they're watching someone who could have done anything and did this thing. Um, But before we get there, I'd just like to talk about specifically the character, the protagonist that you chose to populate this adventure. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what, uh what their particular challenges are and the world that they were facing okay um
1: i you know i i uh, if there was one trope i wanted to avoid it was the uh, wide-eyed farm boy um protagonist um i you know i sat down to write this novel when i was 53 Um, and I thought, you know, there's just, we need to have, we need to have more, uh, protagonists who are in the later half of their lives. So I'm going to make, my protagonist is going to be a grizzled veteran, uh, essentially called back unwillingly into service. And, uh, I had an image of him as being very competent and stoic. And, uh, as I was planning him out, it, it just so happened at that time that I, I saw, uh, uh, Wolf Hall uh the BBC production of Wolf Hall with Mark Rylance as uh as Thomas Cromwell a very sympathetic I've got
0: to tell you I love Mark Rylance so much I do. but for di- for, I, I, for, I, for I, different I, reasons possibly than you he he voices a character called Flop on um a children's television show called uh, ah. Bing and um Flop is a very very lovely uh a uh, sort of a uh, carer and parent to this rabbit called Bing I watch it with my three-year-old daughter and he's very mm-hmm. very very calm and he'll say things like you know Bing always like has a toy a, a beloved toy that he then accidentally breaks or he's he's there cooking some biscuits that get burnt uh, and and flop will o voiced by Monk Rylance will always just say something like oh dear Bing I don't think I can help you with that Don't worry, don't worry, Bing. It's no big thing. And he is just my absolute, whenever parenting is getting too much, I'll have my, like, what would Flop do? I just channel Flop and I'll go, don't worry, Suki. It's no big thing. So that's, sorry, I just had to say that is my Mark Rylance moment is that. I had
1: not, uh, I had not uh, been aware of any of his work until Wolf Hall, so that was my introduction to him. Um, I'd love that he's done a a lot of, I mean, I've noticed him a lot more now, obviously. He's a fantastic
0: actor, I really like him a
1: lot. Yeah, and I love, you know, I I, I love the the character he portrayed in, in Wolf Hall. You know, I, lo- I know a lot of people have <laughs> feelings about the way Co- uh, Cromwell is is uh, portrayed in in the uh, the Hillary Mantel's novels, but um, I, that character just that was that was my guy, um, and you know I needed to transplant him to a fantasy world, put a magic sword in his hand, and and uh, and and take it from there. But th- but there's there needed to be something more uh, about him, and uh, you know one of the things that uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, an old chestnut you hear over and over again if, as a writer is, is "write what you know," uh, and so I, I thought about that. And you know, I, my day job—I I went to graduate school in clinical psychology, and I've been a, a psychotherapist for uh, you know over over 20 years. And um, my area of expertise is anxiety and panic specifically. And so I've worked with a lot of uh, people with, with panic attacks, survivors of trauma, and I I couldn't off the top of my head recall any fantasy that I had read where you had a character who was experiencing what we would call PTSD from what they had experienced. And you think about the kind of horrific things that happen in, in, in a fantasy setting and, uh, uh, so I decided that my, my main character would be uh, a person who had, uh, who was experiencing, uh, the symptoms of PTSD from what he had, ex- had seen. Um, and so that was, there, there was my character and, and, uh, I've always wanted, uh, you know, I, I, enjoy, uh, you know, I enjoy realistic portrayals of fantasy worlds. Um, I, I like it to feel, uh, and that it, it sounds, it sounds, it's kind of asinine, but um, uh, something that doesn't feel like a cartoon.
0: Yeah, I, I see. I, I know exactly what you mean. I wonder if you could just, would you mind sort of expanding on that a little bit? Because I suppose for some listeners who don't re who maybe are little sort of less literate in fantasy will be like well what do you mean um, uh how do you mean a more realistic magic well, or think more, seen- why, you've said a magic sword how can you make a a world with a magic sword more realistic what do you do you think right. what does that mean for you uh well i for instance
1: uh one of the things that's always bugged me is that um if 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 a world uh has magic in it um how on earth is the government not going to try to control that uh you know why yeah. <laughs> so you know the the government's going to be all over controlling the use of magic and you know seeing that portrait how would ma- how would it affect the way uh, a culture works I, my and I think that one thing that it would do is magic would probably uh, in a lot of ways, retard progress in terms of uh, technology uh, because well, well, we can just use magic. Because, to do this. Ne-
0: because necessity is the mother of invention and magic removes exactly. a lot of necessity.
1: Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, so many, uh, you know, fantasy worlds are kind of a, uh, quasi-medieval or Renaissance uh, uh, setting uh, and um, you know a lot of complaints about well what why haven't why haven't, you know it isn't happened uh, why hasn't there been more advancement well because they've relied on magic they haven't had to and so we get these the this culture I, you know the, the culture needs to be a real and living culture we you know we can we can go through the thing about I'm rambling. No, you're Lord not. So the, the, okay.
0: the every time without fail that I speak to an author and they just start being really interesting they will uh, I know it's going to come like night follows day they'll apologize for rambling. <laughs> what you're doing <laughs> is being an enthusiast about something that you love and then you're an expert on. So it's all wonderful all, to hear.
1: All right. I think of something like Lord of the Rings, you know, beloved uh uh books obviously. Uh the characters though I don't feel, uh, and many of the characters don't feel uh, like real people. They feel like mythic heroes, right? Um, And uh, and their motivations. Every everyone is is very noble, and or or very evil. There's generally no in between. And uh, yeah, I think that that one reaction to that has been you know what we we call grimdark where no good deed goes unpunished no one has pure motives if you try to do anything uh good it's probably going to end in a horrific disaster um you know it, it's almost uh it it's it's a it's a genre that i don't want to say has contempt for good intentions but it certainly there's a there's a nihilism about it that uh, yeah again it's in my way in my thinking it can be just as guilty of of um, of not portraying things in a realistic fashion as these more uh, heroic uh, fantasy tales that uh, where everyone is is pure and good or or evil flat out evil. Um, and good always triumphs um it seems like uh, more realistic betrayals like the real world where we see that uh you know good is not always rewarded and and certainly evil men uh uh prosper uh and uh it seems sometimes that that uh, that having ethics having values that you hold on to are a handicap um but you know i wanted i wanted my my protagonist to be a good man who was certainly flawed and had his own demons that he was wrestling with but his his aim was to do good um and just wanted him to in that way to be an unequivocal hero rather than an antihero um so making him someone who was deep you know was deeply damaged and had kind of retreated from the world, being drawn back in. That that seemed a whole lot more interesting to me than some, uh, you know, noble hero galloping to the rescue, or you know, someone with all sorts of uh, dirty ulterior motives uh, for for what they they were doing.
0: I, I mean, I I'm gonna I I <laughs> I, I I I absolutely. Um... I, I I don't doubt you. I I'm not um saying that that isn't a legitimate position. I would suggest. Um, I can't really hold myself back from saying this. I I would suggest maybe that we sometimes remember uh, Tolkien as being less gritty than he actually is. And when I've reread the books, I've often been surprised at how not sort of glorious high fantasy it is and how mm. actually Smeagol stroke Gollum is quite a compromised character who has highs and lows and is conflicted in places and he's supposedly the baddie. Um, and that some of our good characters, you know, like including Frodo, you know, I'd argue, you know, it actually complicates quite a lot of the tropes and predate and it even has a hero who fails at the end <laughs> who goes actually you know what i don't sure, want to do i don't sure. want to do this you know what i'm going to keep this for myself i don't want to do this yes. right fair, fair and enough. Then, and in the final chapters actually i think you get a lot of like stuff to do with ptsd and the impossibility of coming home the final chapter in the shire where you know there's reflections on we can not how will anyone ever understand this and how can life Ever go on, and our final scene with Sam sitting down around the table with his family, and it's like this picture of normality, and it ends with something like the line, "Well, he said, here we are," and it just makes me want to weep when I read it because he, no one will understand what he's been through, and I feel almost like this story with, um, your book with like, uh, Sir Oric, um, is that how you pronounce it? Um, yes. yeah is um i almost feel like we're picking up those characters years later in a way in some way a, a character who has had this experience that is like going to the moon is almost incommunicable to the people immediately around them and they kind of sit with it and sit with it and it pops up until one day life kind of knocks on the door and says excuse me you've got some unfinished business i was going to use the metaphor about problems being buried alive but i given the context of the trauma that seems a bit insensitive (laughs) but do you know what i mean it's like it's that's how i feel and that's just my like little defense of of tolkien is actually i think you know as someone who had been to the who'd fought in the first world war and his immediate friends around him just were mown down and killed i I think he was intimately now what i would agree with you with is that it may be that some of his characters are more like it's kind of like a kind of psychodrama and they're representing individual impulses of like an entire one person's brain so they can be a little bit they're not like a a whole person on their own they're kind of like one way of dealing with trauma and then someone else is something else Um, but i agree with you totally about like grimdark as well that if it's if there's no hope at all, there's no real possibility of tension, right? Because we're just like, well, every, right. this is going to end badly. And that's what I love about mm-hmm. reading The Aching God, actually, is like there are there are stakes, right? Like this, <laughs> you know, there are people we care about and there is love and there is hope. And that's why if this goes badly, there's something that could be lost. Right. Now, could you right. talk a little bit about... Um, like, so did you write this, you, did you write this, are you, would you say, I want to like get you to like pick a side now, really, but feel free to reject the question. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I think I'm a combination of
1: the two. Um, I definitely, I, the way that I, I, I wrote the first novel was I, I sat down and, uh, and basically had a list of chapters and what was going, what needed to happen in each chapter. And then I started uh, started the writing process and and the process itself created uh, things that that happened uh, that uh, I hadn't thought out in the beginning. And I so new chapters had to be inserted, and some things had to be juggled around. and uh, oh, this is a great idea! I've got to include this. So a lot of the world building was happening too as I as I went along. I had a you know a, a much more general outline of of the uh, of the world, um, uh, and it just grew at, with the writing. So so in part I do a little I do some plotting in the beginning, and then a lot of what I was doing uh, in between are where is what we think of as pantsing, or I guess is that that's a verb
0: yeah yeah i i i get what you mean because like sometimes you get to a late bit or the he, he, hero faces a problem and you go oh it'd be really cool if they had this item or you know the equivalent of like a get james bond gadget or i'd it or what if they if right. they use this skill i should probably give the reader a heads up early on that they know how to if they right. like i don't know if they like knit a scarf um sixty foot long that allows them to scale a cliff wall. I probably need to show them knitting in the first scene so we know that they can do that. Right. Um Right, yeah. Could you could you talk a little bit about uh being an indie author? I know that seems like a little bit of a jump from kind of like the crafting, but it's it's like an area that I feel least placed to um give advice on or like give a lay of the land on and so whenever i've got you know indie authors on the show i always kind of throw to them a little bit and say can you talk about it a bit because it's i'm aware that it's like an area that has a whole skill set that i you know, what kind of things uh, have what have been some of the upsides and downsides and what do you think some of the things people need to consider um when they're making a decision whether they want to go the traditional route or whether they want to kind of go indie
1: Well, um, I I suppose I should tell a little bit of the story of how I ended up making that decision um, uh, to answer that question. Um, Because I had written for Paizo uh, Publishing, I had a a bit of an in. Uh, They had a a series of novels called Pathfinder Tales. And uh, I approached uh, their fiction editor about writing this novel set in Galarian, their their campaign world, and I was told at the time that you know we're not taking we're not taking any non published authors. We're only working with published authors. So get have someone else publish you and then come back to us. So, um, I at this at a, at one of the writers symposiums, I bumped into a an editor at Tor. Who had worked on some of the they had taken over the Pathfinder Tales line for a time and uh you know approached him and, and introduced myself and he was familiar with my RPG work. And I said, I'm look, I'm I'm looking at writing a novel and um wondering if you would have any uh advice. And what he told me is when you know, I'm familiar with your work, when you're when you've got a draft that you're pleased with, send it to me. Um so again, something that any any writer would give you know at least one kid me for um i oh. i had a, In a, a somewhat bizarre editor, set one, of
0: circumstances where that was accepted yes. as currency yeah
1: right um that i'm gonna a tour editor is gonna look at my novel right and uh he i sent it to him when i finished it and we ended up having lunch then the next year and he sat down and had very some very kind things to say. Um, he said, "You know, this is better than eighty percent of the stuff that comes across my desk." Um, but yeah, I, just I, want I, to I could hear, hear that. that. I
0: think we all felt felt that butt coming right when someone's like yes. leads with oh, like, oh, "This is better than eighty percent of the stuff." You're like, uh, <laughs> I can feel it coming. Yes,
1: uh, uh, this will not. You will not get a New York publisher to buy this novel, and what it boiled down to is he said that my and this was his phrasing your 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 protagonist is too nice and what i you know what i gathered from that was that he was wanting someone who was more of an anti-hero who had rougher edges than than my character did and uh
0: you know what i'm absolutely i'm kind of astonished at that not to impugn this individual editor but um i'm really amazed that people sort of say things like that and maybe it's different in the states to oh no actually that was more or less my experience with when i was taking around my first novel i remember i showed it to an agent and they were like well you know like if this was they literally said if this was about a kind of like sad barbarian i think i could sell it but um, this isn't the kind of thing people are taking at the moment. So maybe actually I've right. sort of blocked blocked out the uh, trauma of that. But you must have been yeah. miffed because that seems to me incredibly short sighted.
1: Absolutely not, and and the reason why is first of all I thought you know how lucky was I to get someone to to look at this and and uh, to give honest feedback about what how New York you know in new york publishers the the big 5 are going to respond to this uh, because here i am i'm 52 53 years old um, i don't i i'm not someone who takes rejection very well i don't feel feel like i have the constitution for it and The idea of do you you blame
0: yourself or do you get angry about it? Is it the kind of thing where you're like, I'll burn this place to the ground, or are you kind of like, oh, well, I I guess I am an awful person?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've the latter is really where I go to more. I mean, sometimes I might be offended at first, uh, but then it it goes back to, no, they're right, I suck, um, and uh, you know, so that's real. That's something that would be really difficult for me. So the idea of sending out query letters, securing an agent, uh, have, submitting, you know, going that through that process—if that works out—if I can get an agent, uh, finding uh, a publisher who's going to take me—the um, uh, the amount of control that I'd be letting go of in doing that—and I just thought, I'm I'm not built for this. I'm not emotionally equipped. For what this is going to take, and so hats off to every traditionally published uh, writer in the world, um, having secured an agent and and gotten a book deal, and uh, just a, a hats off. I, I don't. It's amazing that you that you have the fortitude to do that. I just know that I I don't. And I also knew that you know, in him telling me he wanted, you know, it could very well be. That he was saying my, my my protagonist was too nice, and that was a polite way of saying boring. Um. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I I harbor absolutely no ill will toward this editor. I mean, he he was a, very generous with his time. I had some kind things and other suggestions to make that ended up being, I think, really useful for me. And he suggested going the route of self publishing because uh, he thinks there might that maybe there's a market for that. But you know, the the traditional market is probably not going to go for this. And uh, if you look at you know a lot of the the really bigger hits. They do tend to be more of a, you know, more grimdark in nature. But that's
0: because because uh, there's a bunch of gatekeepers who are only buying grimdark, right? You've just explained that. Like, how could they possibly be nice if nobody's buying nice characters? How how could that possibly that you can't? We can only know what the sales are for books for trad trad published books that have been bought. So by definition, if all the big advances are going to grimdark. Then all the anything that sells well will have to be grimdark, right? So it's a little bit of a exactly. self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And if you if you chat with people in the in the uh, indie community, that's exactly what you're going to hear them say. And and that was certainly my experience. And uh, it it just so happened that uh, just prior to uh, to getting uh, to having this meeting with with the editor, uh, I had stumbled upon a. a a community of indie fantasy authors, a Slack group. Um and that <laughs> the way that happened too is uh uh I had I had been uh you know whining to myself about how no one on the paizo chat board seemed to be talking about my stuff anymore and no one had messaged me in a while well who was the last person to message me and uh, i looked and and saw the uh the the nickname of the person and and looked at his profile uh and this was a year ago that i had had contact with this person and it turns out that it was uh author phil tucker Hmm. uh who uh, is, you know, pr- prolific, really, really talented, uh, self-published uh, fantasy author who uh, did the, uh, this, the Chronicles of the Black Gate and the God's Blood uh, trilogy and, and just brilliant, sweet guy. And uh, he invited me into this group and they really provided me with a lot of hand-holding for how you do the self-publishing thing because I am not a natural salesman. And I, I think that oftentimes when, when people think of self-publishing, that's one of the things that they assume, that you have to be this marketing genius. That you'll be
0: kind of like uh, traveling it, the country doing a kind of like literary equivalent of a medicine show, like, uh, right. like a huckster opening up the back of a wagon and saying, step right up, right. Um, Yeah, which, exactly. which, which I don't know. I, I know few people who that wouldn't the idea of that kind of thing wouldn't fill them with horror
1: yeah, that 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 absolutely fills me with horror. and and uh, and it was one of know one of my fears. also what was what was the cost going to be? And really, I mean, he he sat me down and uh, along with a number of other just wonderful people in this group, and just advice about finding an artist for your cover. and um, you know, it was it was Phil who put a bug in uh, the ear of uh, uh, Victoria at Podium Publishing. When my book first came out and was doing surprisingly well, and ended up having Podium uh, approach me that first week it was out and asking if I'd I'd be interested in having it produced as an audiobook. book. Um, so I mean I I I have been so lucky, Tim. I mean, I think about all the breaks that I've got, all this serendipitous. Things that happen, people I've met, connections I've made, that just have made all the difference in the world. Uh, you know, we think of self-publishing as you know, you're all on your own, you know, and and it's a lonely place to be. But the truth is, um, there are communities out there, and uh, there are uh, and self in my experience, the majority of self-published uh, writers are 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 wonderful people who are do not think of what we're doing as a zero sum game so uh you know if if i succeed it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to succeed as well and uh so this group that i'm a part of is it, it has uh people who are you know are struggling and not really having trouble catching on and and those that are making very very comfortable uh livings uh doing this thing and uh it's just, a, it's it's been a wonderful experience and and I, I just consider myself to be incredibly lucky to have stumbled upon so many helpful things that have, have made it possible.
0: I, I think I, I, I do, um, over the last sort of 15 years, because it's, you know, the world of sort of self-publishing and indie publishing has changed so radically with the advent of the internet and the e-readers and things like that. My, my my feelings have have sort of changed from feeling that it was i think you know when i was before i was published myself feeling that self publishing was some kind of lesser adjunct to the true validation oh. of being trad published to now Van- vanity, vanity press yeah exactly and i think there was some truth mm-hmm. when you had to pay like huge amounts of money to get like 50 copies of your book bound and then there was nowhere re- really to to nowhere to right. sell them to feeling that um trad publishing is is in really deep trouble unless it looks at w- what indie authors are doing and the way that they are connecting with audiences and learns fast off them because they're just going to get eaten alive uh yeah. you know what i mean like now <laughs> now i'm like tra- trad publishing is is almost kind of like this kind of like community kind of behind the gates of this great walled city who have been kind of like going we will continue with the ancient ways and meanwhile the barbarians have like made siege engines yeah, they're, they're and they're learned magic gates. and you're like ah uh, guys yes. <laughs> look out yeah
1: it, it it really is it's a brave new world in so many ways um, and uh, you, you really you, you can these days you can set uh, a traditionally published book next to a self-published book and you cannot tell them apart. I mean, the quality... How did you get uh, that,
0: your um, covers done? Because they look amazing.
1: Yeah, they're wonderful covers. My, my initial cover uh, was universally uh, panned as horrifically bad. And Podium ended up saying, hey, how about if you let us make a cover for you? And so their artist... Uh, Alexander Rito, I believe, is his name. He is a Portuguese uh, artist. Uh, did he? He does the uh, covers for uh, for Podium, and he they did that for me gratis. Uh, I, I uh, and they ended up doing you know doing one for the print as well, and they did the same for uh, Sin eater the sequel, and I anticipate them doing the same for the for the third book when if and when it gets written. Uh, so, uh. uh i i got really lucky I, I lucked into another there's another situation where i lucked into something where it ended up costing me less than than it does many other people to get those done but yeah i i, lo- I think he did a brilliant job i really really think they're evocative and and eye-catching and
0: they are the, co- the, co- the colors the color scheme on aching god is just it's really nice and um mm-hmm. i i so just to kind of like pluck a couple of uh actionables out of there um it seems to me like one of the things you are saying is that community is really really helpful when you're an indie author that it just that that that's kind of like how you um maximize your impact i don't mean to make it sound that mercenary i know there are people that you get on with as well but that's that that's a kind of like force multiplier
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, networking is, is crucial. I mean, you know, for those who think that, you know, if you, if you write a brilliant novel, it's gonna, it's gonna get out there and people are going to recognize it. And that's how you make this thing work. You got to write something wonderful. And the truth is, there, there's plenty, (laughs) there are plenty of wonderful novels that get, you know, have two reviews on amazon and been out for years and nothing's happened with them and it's just because people haven't
0: (laughs) you know they haven't too close to my actual (laughs) life (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that's the thing and it's
1: it's about networking and uh and and you know there are there are some people out there who do think of this as a zero-sum game and you know i i must crush all before me um but and you know most indie authors can't afford to, to to be that way uh and uh you know the the reason i think my first novel did as well as it did and it didn't do stellarly i mean it did it did really well for for a self-published novel uh but it certainly didn't go gangbusters and you know i, I didn't have uh publishers clamoring to sign me up or any, anything like that but um it sold uh, reasonably well, and the reason for that is I uh, assembled a team of beta readers who, you know, in exchange for an honest review, got a f- free copy of, of the novel, and uh, with the understanding that they were going to post a review, and so I got I got a number of reviews uh, quickly, which you know tickled the the Amazon logarithms so that. Uh, Uh, it would pop up more in people's searches and, uh, you know, when you get some good also bots going, that is, is another way. I mean, that's the way I find a lot of what I end up reading is, is through the also bots on, on Amazon. Um, it really, uh, that kind of word of mouth, you know, having a social presence on Twitter, which it, it doesn't come naturally to me at all. Um yeah I, I consider myself an introvert, and the idea of having to get out there and market and toot my own horn because that's the other thing we we talked about this a bit before we started recording about uh, being modest. I was raised in a home where uh it's it's tooting your own horn is considered vulgar. and it's hard for me to say nice things about myself and a, and actually had other people give me a talking to about this because i tend to be self-deprecating uh and and refer to my prose as as turgid um uh and because th- there's almost a sense that if i if i sing my own praises uh i'm i'm doing something really loathsome
0: I know know those feelings, Mike, I'd say that my experience like being doing doing stand up and being a stand up poet and doing hour long shows is that there's a like point uh, the way I kind of like started to kind of loosen that particular those particular thumbscrews on myself was realizing that with all audiences, there's actually by being self deprecating, there's a point at which um, you're putting a lot of the burden of making you be, feel all right onto them and then there's actually Absolutely. a point where you go look i'm fine whether you enjoyed the show or not i just want to say i think it's great right like actually yeah. in a way you see audiences like palpably relax because they're like this person is not watching me to check if i'm all right am i having a good time they're like i'm happy with myself yes. right and and what i if it helps you like um, and you know, and saying this to everyone out there, give yourself permission to be a bit more, you don't have to be always saying how great you are, but to sort of like be happy about saying that you're great is like, I think for a lot of other people, that's actually gives them permission. They're going, oh, so it's not on me to make up this kind of perceived deficit. Um, because a lot of self-deprecation, uh, or certainly how I've used it and, uh, you know, starting to kind of like admit this to myself is it's kind of a con like i'm doing self-deprecation yes. but i'm inviting i'm creating a tension where the other per- people i'm speaking to are kind of asked to step in and do the work absolutely. for me you know what i mean
1: absolutely yes yeah i think that's right on the nose and 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 it's tedious too you know <laughs> frankly. It's tedious, and and you do when 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 someone says, you know, I I hope you I apologize for my turgid prose. Um, the truth is, uh, there are some people, for instance, in this this uh, writers group that that I'm a part of, who have read my book or tried to read my book, and it you know just oof, it's just not for them, right? They just they they for whatever reason they find it, you know, they they find it unreadable. And it's not because they're brilliant and I suck, which would be, you know, my, my go-to response, but that tastes vary. And I'm not, not everyone is going to be uh, thrilled with what I do.
0: I'll tell you what, and I'll tell you what, Mike, if, if like, if you want to, if you, if you want to see some turgid prose, I feel like I can, that my Baroque multi claused <laughs> my goodness a character only has to walk past a lampshade and and that is the next three pages uh, has been is like oh my gosh don't look at anything like tim's gonna describe it i've read some i've read some books on trees this morning so uh, my readers are gonna have to get the no i'm of course i'm i'm joking i'm being self-deprecating but i right. I'm, I'm i'm kidding right yeah absolutely and i think that's a really exciting and liberating point as a writer is where you go oh i can't please any everyone huh oh i don't have to oh i can choose my readership because there's more than one book in the world and they get to choose exactly. themselves as well and actually it's far better yeah. to give the people who love your stuff like that thing that they want um it's i always i think now like sometimes i when i spoke writers get asked like What's some, like, key mistakes you think new writers should avoid? And actually, I think the better question is, like, what are some, like, key great things that new writers can do? Because you can think of, like... You and I can think of some of our favourite books or movies, right? And we know that they've got some flaws, right? We could probably point out better than anyone the areas that they fall down. But there's at least one area where they do something better than anything else we've seen. And as long as you do that really well readers you can take that to the bank because readers will like let let the rest of it slide because they just want the good thing
1: absolutely absolutely yeah i i agree and, and uh yeah having uh, you know i i am a man of opinions and all of my opinions are well thought out and reasonable and correct you know <laughs> i mean like you know that sense that that I've always been very opinionated about uh, especially about music and uh, looking down my nose at people who who aren't listening to the correct music yeah. <laughs> and I still haven't I haven't overcome that uh, I'm, I'm still a horrible snob when it comes to music but with with uh, with books and films and uh, there's still there's still certainly uh, I have strong opinions but I, I'm a lot less judgmental of others who don't hew uh, to the same tastes uh, that I have, uh, which is why I can have people in this Slack group who don't care for what I do, yet whose opinions I really respect. Who are wonderful people. Um, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of two of the uh, two of the women in this group who just don't care for what I've written, who I really. Uh, appreciate their feedback I appreciate their their perspective and um, and it's absolutely okay that they don't love what I'm doing it's okay
0: that's an awesome place to be I certainly think that that you you come across as an incredibly healthy place and that sounds like a really awesome crit group where you can have Differences of opinion, you know, like it's not group think it's not like everybody's under pressure to uh, only because that would be ru- Rubbish in terms of feedback, but that you can right. have this kind of plurality and diversity of views um, While all, you know while all feeling that each other are, you've got mutual respect. How awesome
1: Yes, yeah.
0: so yeah, it, re- it the, the, this
1: this slack group is priceless it, It's 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 a it's a beautiful beautiful community a great place to be and when we're and it's it's a pretty large group it's a, it's called the terrible 10 and it started off as 10 people there there are probably three times that number or actually almost four times that number in the group now uh but it's just a it's it's such a treasure trove of uh, of support and 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 knowledge and uh, experience it's it's a Everyone needs to be in a group like this. Every writer needs it.
0: Mike, do you mind if I ask you some quick fire questions about um, writing adventures and about tabletop uh, RPGs? Because I just, it's, I I, I just, for context for listeners, I'm currently running IDM2 groups and I only started DMing like a few, well, I only started playing... Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder a few years ago you know relatively late in life compared to a lot of people partly because mm-hmm. I ha- had my first book out and I it was it was therapy to me it's been really it's been really great therapy to me in a ways that yes. I don't know how to really ex- explain to people but um I'm running t- I I I DM two groups and both groups I'm running uh, adventures that were at least in part in one case uh, written by Mike, so um that's kind of like how i first kind of came across your work and i just want to ask you do you i mean do you ever do you play any do you do any role playing yourself or do you dm at all or have you done in the past
1: i have not since i was a teenager um i uh, which really shocks a lot of people um I assume that anyone who's writing for rpgs must still play but uh i the last time i played in any sort of campaign i was probably about 16 or 17 years old can i,
0: can I ask can i ask you a personal question about um Dra- dragon's demand one of the adventure paths that i believe you had a hand in sure actually a, that's a standalone module uh, oh sorry yeah um, sorry I, I, my terminology is yes. wrong it's not an adventure path. it's a uh, a module and adventure paths are these six part things right yeah yeah so there's a bit in it that when and I should say all any of my players that um, are listening to this, switch off now. I don't want to have any spoilers, and if you are ever thinking about um, not run, if you want to run one of these things as a DM, then it'd be great to listen. But if you're thinking of being a player, then perhaps you'd like to skip this section. Um, there's a bit in it that when I delivered it to my players, they all looked at me like, "Tim, Tim." Come on! <laughs> what? Oh, my God. And and I know that this adventure path was... Sorry, not adventure path, that this module, Dragons Demon, was published before my novel, The Honours, came out. But, in fact, if you haven't read The Honours, this is probably a good time to not listen because I'm going to do a big spoiler for The Honours. Right, so I'm going to tell you this, Mike. Halfway through The Honours, there's a moment where the protagonist has just extricated herself from being tied up by the from by the villains to a bed she she's a 13 year old girl she climbs out the window of this big kind of uh uh english country house and then she looks to the horizon and flying towards her and there's been no fantasy in the book up until this stage is like a gang of humanoid bat creatures who just fly (laughs) out of a clear blue sky and attack the building she's in and when i and in your adventure part there's a bit where there's kind of an auction going on sorry not adventure uh, adventure there's an auction going on and sort of the same thing happens with creatures very similar i did that moment to my players and they were like timmy you just turning this into tim claire fan fiction they were so (laughs) i had to say i had to like pick up the book and go it's in here i didn't do this but um can you just took <laughs> I just needed to share that with you because they were so. They felt like they felt like I was tricking them, and I was like, "This is in the story. I didn't know it was in here."
1: So I got when uh, uh, I got approached about doing a standalone module. They were changing changing the format. They had the the product line had kind of stalled a bit, uh, in part because it was the it was the piece that could all uh, could always be put on the back burner. And they decided they wanted to make these things a bigger event, and so this this was going to be the first 64-page uh, uh, versus a 32-page module adventure, taking uh, players from first to seventh level, and they wanted it to feature a dragon as the as the big bad, and that's all they gave me. They let me uh, generate the entire story from there.
0: It is, is such—I um, have to say, Mike—it is such a rad adventure. We've been having a ball. Oh, thank you. Good. I—that I, was it. Was that was probably
1: one of my favorite things to write because I had so much freedom. And uh, again, if we're, if we're doing spoilers here, um, I was able to figure out a way to draw on the, this more Lovecraftian. No,
0: so sort exciting. Of thing
1: yeah and uh which which was the other uh the adventure path that you're write, you're writing uh, i was able to do, do the, the same. same
0: thing i know <laughs>
1: yeah. and uh and i if one of my favorite bits of writing i've ever done is this is one of the support articles for that uh adventure path about the dominion of the black
0: oh that's so so the other this other adventure i'm running is called um Iron Gods, and it's kind of like fantasy, but um, there are. I'm saying this for the benefit. I know you know this, Mike. I'm saying this for the benefit of the audience. Yeah. Um. But it, but uh, in a in a part of the world where a lot of the relics and dungeons that the players are exploring are like quite obviously, as the players realise probably before the characters, um, cr- ancient crashed spaceships and bits of technology yes and, and 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 so the dominion of the black are like this this kind of they're like kind of like semi lovecraftian mythos inspired alien mm-hmm. oh. yes it's, re- it's yeah, really scary they're really scary actually
1: yeah i i loved the just coming up with the lore for for this i don't know if you've read that yeah, particular have, support. yeah, yeah. um the, the nothing more fun than than generating that kind of uh, uh, mythos. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the things that that uh, you do for Pizo when you I wrote uh, a couple of gazetteers for them uh, or uh, I wrote two full gazetteers for uh, parts of their world and then little support articles for for other parts of their world. And essentially, what you're doing is you're dropping uh, hooks uh throughout so here's something that someone could write an adventure about here's something else that you could write an adventure about and uh dropping hooks is is a blast
0: i have to say that's Um, why as a writer i think i enjoy reading them so much because it's it's just like putting poppy popping candy directly into my brain i'm reading these things going oh dude what what what's going on there you said what you said there's been rumors of what Uh, you're like I've got to find out more about this because you know the Dominion of the Black have got all sorts of stuff about like having these rituals where they like line spaceships up on the edge of like black holes and then some will just drive screaming into the center and things like that oh they're amazing
1: it's it's so much fun to generate ideas uh, knowing that you're never going to have enough time to to, uh, fully develop all of them, but knowing that you're kind of throwing that out there for other people to, 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 to pick up the thread, um, just just, just a blast. And, and, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity that Paizo really allows their freelancers a lot of, uh, a lot of leeway in creating, uh, They're the stories that they that they give you the bare bones outline
0: Um, for what what makes a good adventure hook to you what makes something uh because i think this is this really will help you know writers thinking about writing in almost any genre but you know what's the kind of thing that makes something like irresistible to a party of adventurers or a protagonist or you know what's a great call to Uh, action something that
1: uh that uh just is a is evocative i mean that starts you know they talk about you know the, the the bit about well there's there's rumor that the dominion of the black worship black holes they see them as deities and and uh and in religious ecstasy fling themselves into black holes and what kind of you know questions does that make a person start asking um i want to know more about that i mean that's the bottom line is it is is generating ideas that that excite a person's imagination and uh uh you know just get them get them to think yeah
0: like uh, immediately like as a dm you're like going okay so maybe maybe there's a sort of scouting party somewhere on the planet who've this is. I'm going really deep, nerdy here, but like, maybe there's a scouting party somewhere on the planet who've like, there's been rumors of like a sphere of annihilation, and like one of the factions trying to get it are like, uh, kind of like advanced party of Dominion of the Black who, like, semi worship this, see it as a kind of the equivalent of like right. a religious relic and want to get hold of it. Right. Well, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe there are antagonists, but maybe there's another, maybe there's another group who are going to use it to kind of like take over. A country or kill somebody and like who do you ally with here or what you know like it's cool you are, it's great my brain's fizzing yeah. already right um, yeah uh, so uh, one uh, one final area kind of if it's all right i just wanted to quickly cover because i feel like it'd be remiss of me not to is you sort of mentioned at the beginning um that you that you're kind of like you that you trained as a psychologist and that you work with anxiety and panic attacks and those are things that um they're also in my wheelhouse of interest because I still suffer from like severe anxiety and um periodically from um panic attacks and at the moment I'm working on this on this on this book where I'm trying to speak to lots of different experts and get to the bottom of where they can't you know what our current best models are and um where the science is these days and some of the best ways to get through it now I also know because I mention I talk about my own sort of mental health challenges on the podcast I also know from listeners dozens of people have written to me to say that they manage similar challenges um have you got any insights on the nature of anxiety and uh, uh, ways that people can start sort of tackling it in their own lives. Um, I was trained
1: in a pretty strict cognitive behavioral model. Um, I'm not sure how well it well informed your your the listeners are going to be about, that cognition is a thought looking at a lot of people's thought processes the impact that has on them emotionally how they experience their lives and oftentimes i i conceptualize i think in a cognitive framework so th- this
0: but, and, th- and would this be um uh is, is this still kind of considered the kind of like aaron beck kind of school of is that his he's sort of one of your big sort of players in that field Uh, he
1: he would be one of he's kind of seen as the as the grandfather of cognitive behavioral therapy um but there are really so many different uh uh, cognitive uh models uh and approaches um what i have found the longer that i've i've worked in the field is the need for flexibility the need to uh to be eclectic to pull from other schools of thought one thing as a therapist, you know early on when I'm working I was working with people with anxiety, we'd go right into uh, you know there's a huge education component having people understand anxiety from an evolutionary perspective, what it's there for, why it's so hard for us to ignore, what happens when when we have false alarms going on and uh, and then teaching them interventions. And what I f- have found over time is that, Until a person feels understood, until they feel like you get it, all the information in the world, all the data, all the scientific understanding of the process uh, is for naught. A person needs to feel that someone gets what they are struggling with. And so what that comes down to is, uh, is more humanistic, approaches uh interpersonal approaches um meeting a person where they're at and uh, meeting them with empathy and kindness um this is kind of coming full circle from the beginning um i find this coming up so much for me with clients over and over again is just how many people lack kindness in their lives whether it's from, from the, the people in their, in their lives uh, or from themselves. And really needing to meet people where they, they, they recognize the need to have compassion for themselves. They need to have patience with themselves. Um, understanding that, like physical pain, anxiety is a part of human existence. It's there for a reason. And uh, when a person is struggling with chronic anxiety, what they want more than anything is for it to go away. They want it to be gone. And the truth is, sometimes we need our anxiety. And I experience physical pain. it's, Its evolutionary function is to alert me to the fact that damage is being done to the body and I need to respond now, not later. It's very difficult to ignore. I experience anxiety when I perceive that uh, some sort of threat. And if we're talking about threat, I'd rather overreact rather than underreact. It's very difficult to ignore anxiety. I need to have it in my life because there are times when it comes in handy. Uh, So finding a way to to recognize that nothing i do is going to get rid of all the anxiety i have i need to get to a place where i am accepting the fact that i am going to experience discomfort and being okay with that and there might be some ways to get a little bit of distance from from the emotion uh, there's a there's a school of, of thought now called uh, act or acceptance and commitment therapy that i've gotten really interested in recently uh, Russ, I believe Russ Harris is the uh, author of *The Happiness Trap*. It's a, it's really a very accessible uh, introduction to this, uh, to this therapeutic model, uh, and and it's really part of it is about accepting the fact that I'm going to feel some of these uncomfortable feelings sometimes, and finding a way to be okay with that and make a commitment. Toward taking action that will move me in in the direction of what I value, and so having working with anxiety uh, when I first got into the business, there is one right way to do this, and and uh, you know I'm going to make you you uh, you square pig peg fit into my round oh. hole regardless. And now with you know with a couple of uh, plus decades under my belt. It's more about meeting the person where they're at and finding out what approach is going to get them to uh, start coping more effectively. But most importantly, having uh, having compassion for themselves, which I think is essential uh, to get control over their lives.
0: Um, I think what you're saying there is really just, re- just makes so much intuitive sense to me and also happens to um, fit with so much of the literature i've been reading and so many of the different theoretical things i think one of the hard things that and i think this would be true for anyone who's a writer who struggles with perfectionism and procrastination and things like that and the discomfort of writing something is that so many things that reduce anxiety 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 is essentially you know an essential component of it is avoidance and so many things that make us feel less anxious in the short term, things that are anxiolytic as they uh been saying in the in psychiatry yeah. in the short term are um increased anxiety are anxiogenic in the long run um because we kind of I was speaking to a good friend of mine the other day, and we we both suffer with really desperately wanting people to like us, yes. And being worried if people are annoyed. I was interviewing an academic just yesterday morning and I asked him a question uh, saying, how did you get into, uh, you know, doing, how do you get interested in this area? You know, where did it start for you? And he's like, well, he said, "Uh, can we just talk about the theory? I don't want to answer any personal questions. He was perfectly nice, (laughs) perfectly polite, perfectly within his rights. I like nearly cried because I was so worried that he was angry at me, mm-hmm. that I'd done something wrong, that I'd offended him. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd offended him at all. I think he was just exercising right. his personal boundaries. Right. And in fact, people who work in psychology sometimes, or psychiatry sometimes, have very personal reasons why they might have got interested in that area, and it might not be something that they publicly want to discuss, which is fine and normal and not about me. But I was struck afterwards by how shaken i'd been how not okay i was with the possibility that this stranger might for whatever reason be mildly annoyed with me right like 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 i was enough to and, and 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 what we i was saying is like how we reinforce that so often by um turning to our partners or whatever and saying you know, am I okay? Yes. Are you annoyed with me? Yeah. And and, and realizing that in the best case scenario of that behaviour, that they turn around and go, You know what? I just want to say you're wonderful and I and I love you and I'm never annoyed at you. And what a and what a wonderful person you are. <clears throat> and I just wanna say you're the light of my life and I will be <laughs> with you until the moment I die. That even in that best case scenario, what that would actually do is wickedly reinforce that behavior so it'd be much harder to let go of next time right uh so the best case scenario just makes our anxiety much worse in future yes yes absolutely and
1: and again um that's something that this this act model really gets at um looking at the way avoidance uh you know it moves us toward what we what we want in the short run which is relief um but in the long run, uh, ends up exacerbating the problem. And, uh, the trick sometimes is figuring out, you know, there there are times when we do need relief, right? I mean, we just need relief. I don't need to fix this right now. I just need relief. And it's, it's knowing the difference between when I need relief and when I need to, you know, white knuckle, whatever it is I need to ride through right now. Um, Find some ways to kind of modulate the the intensity of this the thing that I'm feeling, but but tolerate it so that I can move myself in the direction that I want to go.
0: It's it's uh, it's I mean it's fiendishly difficult, and I think that's one of the reasons why having uh, sort of like an experienced uh, expert to kind of guide you through to help you think through those judgments yourself. Because like you say, sometimes it can be adaptive and the wise choice to do something that reduces your f- state of anxiety. Sometimes it can doing that can be something that um, that gives you a glimpse of another way of being that can kind of like help guide you towards something. But at the same time, okay, sometimes it can also be sort of the beginning of a kind of compulsive behavior that makes you not okay with touching, that makes you flinch away from feeling feelings that on the other side of which are peace and a new stability right absolutely um and in terms of writing it sounds like for you at least for writers that one of the ways that they can start you know maybe dealing with some of their page anxiety some of their worries i'm not going to be good enough is to find that community that group of people you trust who you can talk through some of those feelings realize you're not alone so like you were saying be heard right and also so you can get the hopefully if you've chosen you know people who are supportive you can have people who will know when it's time to kind of like gently nudge you out of the nest Mm -hmm. and when and when it's a good time to kind of lift you up and distract you, you know, where, you know to help you kind of like make those decisions and empower you to to be able to face those feelings from a position of uh, stability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, know, I realize, Mike, that I am just sort of saying, I'm explaining <laughs> to someone who has given a huge amount of their career and life and research to to, to 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 this subject, I'm now explaining anxiety no, back to no, you. No, no, no. I, I, I think I,
1: I think it's. I've always found it fascinating. One one thing that I love more than anything else is our, our case conferences, when when a bunch of therapists get together and conceptualize what's going on with the client in ways that that we can approach working with the client. I love hearing how other people do their jobs. I love hearing how they approach things. Um, and I love hearing clients share their personal experience and how they've integrated this into their thinking. I find that fascinating. It, it informs me and, and I think makes me better able to uh, to articulate things in different ways to people because not everyone is going to hear, you know, I've said so many of these things so many times that sometimes it's like, you know, pressing a button or pulling a string and I go into my, um, you know, Prefab, uh, five minute lecture and, uh, hearing the way other people conceptualize and ver- and, and articulate is absolutely, I, I, I love it.
0: So I was just wondering if you could say, um, if people want to find your, find your, um, work, um, where's the best place for them to go to do that? Okay.
1: Uh, I have uh, a poorly-maintained website, uh, MikeShell.com. That's one L in Shell. Uh, in the two uh, full-length novels I've released are Aking God and sequel, Sin Eater. Both are available on Amazon exclusively, as is often the case with a lot of self-published writers for various uh, uh, financial reasons. Um i'm on twitter at mike shell uh author and uh that's that's probably it those are the ways you can get hold of me.
0: fantastic i'll put links to all of those in the show notes to today's episode so anyone listening you can just click on those and uh go through and uh check out uh mike's work i I really uh recommend uh um uh, downloading uh aching the aching garden having uh, ha- checking it out i think you'll have a really really great time mike thank you so much for being so generous with your time and um chatting to me about all um our sort of diverse areas of shared interest thank you so much
1: tim it was a pleasure and, and uh, uh uh a privilege
0: mm-hmm. oh thank you so much and everybody listening i hope you have a fantastic week of writing